My name is Bill Jay, and I'm talking to you from Tempe, Arizona. When I saw a bunch of photographs which I didn't understand, uh, then I would contact the photographer. memory is that it was just a ring at the door, you, you know, and suddenly there was this guy. I came into the room, I looked the guy up and down and said, hmm, this is an interesting character. The reason I accepted your offer to be included here is because I hold the guy in such high regard. I personally think he's the most interesting writer there's been on photography. He owed a lot of money and um, he just got out of everything. He escaped. He was a lone voice in America. He was a beacon of hope, really. He was an evangelist. Bill was a catalyst for all of us. He was the flame that started it all. The meaning of that is unintelligible, and so it should be. My name is Grant Scott, and this is In Search of Bill J. Well, hello and welcome back to The Shed, the HQ, the headquarters for the In Search of Bill J project. In episode one, I dived straight into the meat of the subject. I looked at the idea of finding Bill J through his editorship of Creative Camera magazine. It seemed to be the most obvious place to start. It was certainly the most public, and it was a way in which I could try and find out who this man was from a photographic perspective. But I think it's also important to find out who he was as a man. Bill Jay was born in Maidenhead, a small town in Berkshire, in 1940. In fact, on August the 12th. He attended the local grammar school, but like so many boys and girls who ended up in grammar school in the 1950s and 60s, his background was not one of privilege. He speaks, and there are tales of him getting caught for poaching. I don't know how much of that is true, but it's certainly the case that his father, who had worked in a local printing company, printing factory, was not bringing in a huge amount of money. This was not a wealthy family. Education was Bill's way forward, and there's no doubt that he was an enthusiastic scholar. As I said, he attended the local grammar school, and his religious fervour was certainly already evident. And that's been shown by his schoolboy diaries, which his daughters have been starting to go through since we made the film. Bill's three daughters, Hannah, Juliet and Louise, didn't really seem to know very much about the importance of their father or what he had done prior to us making the film. But it's been great that since the film coming out, they've been enthused to look into his background. And one of those... Uh, projects that they've undertaken is actually going through those schoolboy diaries and finding out exactly who their father was at an early age. In episode one, Bill's sister spoke about his enthusiasm for Billy Graham's preaching approach to spreading the word. But it's also very evident in those early diaries that Bill was an inquisitive chap who wanted to find out about religion, but also there was a seriousness in his intent. That seriousness was also evidenced in his 
study of photography. And of course, photography at that time was a serious business. It was full of physics and chemistry. It wasn't about aesthetics. It wasn't about intention. It was about the making. And Bill became an expert on printing processes, achieving his city and guilds from the London Institute in 1960. That was the first time he got a qualification that was going to take him forward with the medium. And where did it take him? Well, let me pass you over to Bill and he can fill in some of the details. My parents wouldn't have been horrified if I'd worked in the local camera shop because both my parents left school at the age of 14. They were wonderful parents and they were intelligent. Um, but they had no schooling whatsoever, you know. And so when I won a scholarship to go to a grammar school, uh, it was the first time it ever happened in my family, of course that they were thrilled, you know, because this meant that I would be uh, getting out of that working class, you know, uh, uh, attitude, you know, and bringing credit to the family and, you know, having more potential income than they did and so on. So anyway, my first job, I applied for a summer position at Practical Photography Magazine, which was a monthly, it was the biggest monthly, biggest circulation monthly photographic magazine in Europe at the time. It was very much like popular photography was here. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also had a sister publication, Photo News Weekly, which was a weekly newspaper about photography. And um, so during the summer, I applied for a summer position, and uh, the application process was writing an article. So I did that and uh, and got offered the position, which was great because I spent the summer uh, working in this magazine, and I'd never worked in a magazine before. It was not what had been planned for me after a classical education, you know, working in a magazine. Uh, But anyway, uh, one of my first jobs was to write the reader's letters because we didn't get enough from the reader, so I wrote them, you know. And uh, and gradually I graduated to doing before and after pictures. And then gradually, you know, I became one of the writers. They asked me to stay on, and so uh, I did. I was quite enjoying it. And after a few years, three or four years, I got a, another job offer. But uh, I went to the editor of the photographic magazines and said, I've got a new offer. And he said, well, that's good. You know, I mean, you know, I'm not going to stand in the way of anybody who's got a better position. But he said that uh, if you stayed here, uh, you know, what would be the problems? Um, What do you feel is going wrong, you know, with this magazine? This is my chance. I'm young and I'm brash, you know. And and so I say, well, you've got to fire this guy. You know, you've got to do this. You've got to do that and whatever. And so he said, hmm, well, if we did that, would you stay? So I said, yeah, sure, with, you know, uh, if you match the salary of my new offer, okay. Stay outside for a few minutes, will you? So I left. Uh, Next thing I know, he'd fired the features editor, and I uh, took me out into the office and said to all these older people, I mean, some of them were 20 years older than me, and said, I've just pointed uh, Bill, the new features editor, uh, I won't be coming in every day from now on, I'll only be coming in on Fridays, so you take your orders from Bill, as if it was me. 
Before they're recorded by one of his students in his garden in Tempe, Arizona, just outside of Phoenix. Very clear that Bill's confidence was with him early on, and that sense of willingness to upset the apple cart was definitely there. But Bill was coming from a very suburban background there in Maidenhead. And so by the time he got to London and was suddenly the editor of Creative Camera in the centre of everything that was going on, it was obvious that he was going to get excited by what potential there was. At that time, 1968, which was when the magazine became Creative Camera, his friendship with David Hearn was introducing him to all sorts of photographers, particularly within informal parties or getting-togethers at Hearn's flat, which featured some of the great Magnum photographers at the time. There was no London Magnum office, and therefore Hearn's flat became the centre for that operation. So photographers such as Kadalka, Elia Erwitt, Leonard Freed, alongside young British photographers such as Chris Keller, were regularly attending these events where conversation was rich and films were shown and photography was shared, as Martin Parr and Homer Sykes are about to inform us. Hearn's flat in London was regarded as like a quite a social club, you know, where photographers who were visiting, coming through, then the people in Magnum would accumulate there as well. And Bill was very much part of that sort of whole system, if you like, you know, because Bill and David were big mates. A group of photographers, maybe 20, 30, 40 sometimes, a big crowd, would all sit on the floor uh, in David Hearn's flat. The photographer would talk about his work and show photographs. There'd be a projector and all of that kind of thing. Bill's education in photography may have begun in 1960 with his city and guilt, but by 1968, he was learning and listening to the photographers who were shaping where documentary photography in particular was at that time. 1968 was a turbulent year around the world and the photographers in David Hearn's flat were documenting that turbulence. Bill was starting to get an idea about what photography was and what it could be. And the impact of that influence was directly shown in Creative Camera magazine. However, somebody was about to walk into the Creative Camera magazine offices and turn everything on its head. And one of the first uh, people who came in to see me was a young red-headed guy with a droopy Fu Manchu moustache and with a Kodak yellow box under his arm. And he stood in front of my desk and glowered at me and said, your magazine shit. So, uh, of course, I was a bit irate. Um, uh, so I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, it's crap magazine, he said, but I can see you're trying to learn. I can see you're on the right track, so I've come here to help. And I thought, you arrogant sod, who the hell do you think you are just walking in off the street and telling me, you know, what I should be doing? So I said, well, you better put uh, um, uh, 
your cards on the table. Yes. I mean, what right do you have to talk to me like that? He said, I thought you'd ask that, so I brought you my prints to look at. So I opened his yellow box, feeling very prickly and antagonistic, and went through the prints, and uh, within 10 minutes, I was absolutely sold. And I said, you're right, you've got a great deal to teach me. What do I do? He said, well, my name's Tony Ray Jones. And the first thing that we're going to do is go to America together. So I said, I can't do that. I mean, I, I don't have any money. I mean, I don't, wasn't drawing a salary from the magazine at that point. Uh, I was earning my living talking to camera clubs for $14 a night. Um, I didn't have any money to go. He said, well, how committed are you? You just told me you wanted to learn about photography. If you're committed, you'll go. So I saw what positions I had. We got a charter flight to New York, and he introduced me to a lot of photographers in New York City, including Gene Smith and Schakowsky and Arbus and uh, Friedlander and Winogrand and, uh, and Marovich and uh, Frank. And, you know, we did the lot. Right, we did the lot. We'll be talking about Tony Ray Jones and Bill's relationship with Tony and that trip to New York in a lot more detail in a future episode. In fact, I've found out so much about that trip that we're going to be dedicating a whole episode to it. But now, Bill, the grammar school boy from Maidenhead, had switched from David Hearn's flat in Notting Hill, Holland Park, with all of the influences there, to New York. And that was going to bring new challenges for Bill and new horizons, his first trip to America. But as he clearly said there, he's in a situation where he can't afford to go, but he's still going to go. And I think in my search for Bill, that's what I keep finding is that there is that strength and determination. It's almost as if he was fighting constantly against what other people were telling him because he knew that he had a certain sense of destiny with photography. One of the questions that most people asked me when I was talking to them about Bill was, why was he like that? Why was he so strong in his determination? Why was he so evangelical about the photographic medium? Well, I think the answer comes from Bill's childhood to something that happened to him at school. And it's a story that he tells with great passion and great commitment. I went to a very uh, disciplined um, grammar school, as it was called at the time. But the school was run on very harsh disciplinarian lines, and the masters were experts at sadism. And so I remember at the final year that I had at the school, there was an assembly of the students and the headmaster uh, reeled off the names of the boys who had been accepted for university. And uh, his remarks went something like this. Bob Lee has won a scholarship to Guy's Hospital. He wants to be a surgeon. And all the boys in the audience, of course, applauded and thought that was wonderful. Next name, Rennie Lister has won a a scholarship to uh, Nottingham University and wants to be a dentist. Round of applause for Rennie. Uh, Peter Appleton is going to a Bible school. He's going to be a missionary in Nigeria. 
applause for Peter Appleton. Then he came to Bill Jay. Bill Jay says that he doesn't want to go to university. He's interested in photography. And then there was absolute silence amongst the audience. And then everybody burst out laughing. So at that moment, I could have cheerfully slit the throats of every bastard in that room. I was so angry that I vowed there and then that I was going to be better at my field than any of the other students uh, in whatever field that they'd chosen. I think there we have the answer to why Bill was as he was in his own words. He felt he had something to prove and he was going to prove everybody else wrong, whatever it took. And as we progress in this search for Bill J, we're going to find that that took him into some pretty tricky situations. So you do whatever it takes, you know, is to do what you had to do. And Creative Camera, you know, was suddenly becoming uh, quite an international phenomenon. I mean, I didn't have any trouble at all getting some of the world's best photographers just sending photographs in for free just because they wanted to be published in the magazine. So... uh, But uh, there came a point where I uh, uh, had no stake in the magazine anymore because I'd been selling it to the publisher. And also that he wanted, which is quite typical, he was putting the money in for publishing, so therefore he wanted more editorial control. Mm. Well, of course, I wouldn't let him. And uh, because uh, for two reasons. One, because this was my magazine. Even if he was paying for it, it's still my magazine. And secondly, I didn't respect, you know, what he, you know, his sort of taste in photography at all. So in the end, I was uh, editing the magazine in the evenings when he'd gone home and was sending it off to the publisher without him seeing it. I wouldn't let him see it at all. So we went out for a pub lunch one day and he told me that he wanted to edit the magazine or find another editor, you know. And so because our personal relationship had soured over the year, last year or two. And so basically I was fired. I suppose I should have given a spoiler alert before including that extract of Bill talking about his experience at Creative Camera. But Bill's story is not linear and we are going to be jumping backwards and forwards in his life chronologically as we search for who he was. Bill left Creative Camera at the end of 1969, but next episode we'll be jumping back to 1968, Tony Ray Jones and New York, and boy, are there some stories there. This has been a United Nations of Photography production. All music was composed and played by Laura Ritchie. If you'd like to find out more about the film, Do Not Bend, The Photographic Life of Bill J., visit www.donotbendfilm.com.